Pray with me. Almighty God, to you all, uh, all of our hearts are open. You're the one who sees into us. And Lord, you see all the things that swirl inside. Lord, we ask that your, your word this morning be an anchor, an anchor to hope, an anchor to draw us and tether us to you, our risen Lord. And Lord, as we go into your word this morning, let it be seeds in our heart to bear fruit in our lives. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918 in Russia, the same time the Spanish flu was rampaging the country. His father fought in World War I, and he found himself coming of age in another time of war. In the 1940s, having just graduated with a degree in physics, he began to fight for the Soviet Union against the Nazi forces on the Eastern Front. After the war, Solzhenitsyn became a vocal critic of Stalin's regime and thus was sentenced to eight years in a forced labor camp, and then was going to live out the rest of his life in exile. When Stalin died, his sentence was relaxed, and he was able to teach for the very first time. During a cancer scare in this period, he converted to Christianity and was miraculously healed, which deeply formed his thinking. Ultimately, fearing the censorship of his writing, he moved to Vermont with his family, where he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. Solzhenitsyn was, among many things, a thinker that saw the brutal oppression of humanity. He wrote in particular about the forced labor camps. In his book, The Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn writes, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them out from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The problem with sin is its ubiquity. It doesn't just affect a few people. It cuts through all of our hearts. And that truth provides the very foundation of Paul's argument in the first part of Romans. Our reading from Romans today finds Paul in full swing of a sweeping argument, one about the position and nature of humanity, of salvation, and the unity of the church. It's helpful for us to set the scene a little bit. The church in Rome has existed for some time, but Paul has not been able to visit them yet. Like many parts of the Roman world, the city was cosmopolitan. At its peak, not so long before this letter was written, almost a million people lived in the city, a population that would not be seen again in one place like this for 1,800 years. As such, the church community was diverse. There were Gentile Christians as well as a number of Jewish Christians who lived in the city, and they were struggling to understand their own identity as a body, as a church, as a community. What did it mean for all of them to belong to Jesus? Well, Paul hoped to use this church as a base of missionary operations west to go to Spain. This letter lays out his vision for the gospel in the context of their internal struggle to find a shared identity in Christ. 
as a Jew. Paul takes particular aim at the idea that good law-abiding Jews were delivered from sin and death already by the first covenant, and thus were better off than their Gentile brothers and sisters. Paul's project is to show that all of us, regardless of ethnic background, are sinners in need of repentance, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews also. In chapter 3, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, Paul turns to the father of the faith of the Jews, Abraham. It was in Abraham that their ethnic and religious heritage and identity comes. And Paul shows that indeed, Abraham was justified by faith before the law and even before his circumcision, revealing that the foundation of faith in justification is present already in their heritage, already in Abraham. Paul shows that this same logic is the one that is animating his gospel now, which brings us to Romans 5, our text for this morning. Having established that there that the Jews and the Gentiles are both afflicted, all of them afflicted by sin, and that like Abraham, the Gentiles and Jews are declared righteous by the faithfulness of God, Paul moves us towards his theology of a new humanity. Where the Jews find their heritage in Abraham, Paul pushes even deeper to Adam, to show how all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are ultimately heirs of Adam's humanity, and thus Adam's sin and brokenness. So also they can be, by grace, made part of the new humanity in a person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for indeed, Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. When the Jews receive the law, it reveals sin. The law does not make murder sin. It reveals it as sin. And makes those who know it to be sin even more accountable when they transgress it. Paul has now brought us to the root of ourselves. He's brought us to the root of our shared humanity and our shared sin. And it's at this juncture I want us to stop and reflect on what sin actually is. We have, as a culture and a church, talked broadly about what culpability and guilt repentance, and evil are. And sometimes, in all of those voices, we lose clarity. So I want to think about, one, what is sin? And two, what does it mean for us? What is sin? And what does that actually mean for us? By answering these two questions, we get to the heart of Paul's gospel. and It gives us clear ways to think and speak about evil, sin, redemption all around us. First, what is sin? To understand a Christian theology of sin, we have to once again talk about creation. Our Genesis reading from last week reminded us that not only did God create, but he created everything good 
He looks at creation as a whole, including humans, and calls it very good. The triune Lord creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. I know this sounds basic, but it's extremely important when talking about sin. Insofar as anything exists, it is, to that extent, also participating in God's good creation. The word sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. Sin isn't actually a thing itself, though. It's the absence of something, the distortion of something. In the same way that a shadow takes a form and moves around, but is simply the absence of light, so also sin is the absence or distortion of good things. Theologians call it the privation of being. Adding sin to something is sort of like adding a negative number. The sum is reduced, not increased. As a kid, one of my favorite films was The Never-Ending Story. A child gets drawn into a book and must combat this evil dark force, the nothing, which simply eradicates things in the fantasy world from being. And this is a fairly good picture of sin, a descent into the nothing out of which God called creation into being. Scripture. And Romans in particular, though, uses sin in two different ways. It uses it as a noun and as a verb. The noun names the cosmic reality, a sort of entropy of creation that we humans become enslaved to. When we talk about sin in the world, we are naming the ways that creation has rebelled, has become on a fundamental level, distorted from God's good purposes. It's the cracks of brokenness that spread throughout our whole created world, throughout our cultures, societies. Sin is anything opposed to or diverging from God. Thus, God's creative love hates sin. For this reason, Paul connects sin with death. The wages of sin is death. Sin results in death, not life, because sin breaks down, disintegrates, destroys. This internal rebellion weaves itself throughout our whole world. Its effects are everywhere, from earthquakes to cancer to oppression. The verb names participation. Sin does not just inflict creation, it infects us. Sin is not just something we are victims of, it is something that we are guilty of complicity in through our thought, word, and deed. We are created to reflect God into the world and likewise to reflect the praise of creation back to God. But rather than having our hearts calibrated correctly toward God, ordered rightly, and having right worship. Our hearts are turned inward towards ourselves and other things. That's the idolatry we spoke about last week. We use sin as a verb when we act in a way which moves us away from God's goodwill and purpose and toward death, towards uncreation. When we sin, we are pointing our lives towards death and not towards God. That includes silence in the face of injustice. That includes inaction in the face of oppression. It's a universal human condition, something woven into our flesh from Adam. In this way, things which God creates good, including our own hearts, are disordered and disjointed. Repentance is the process of turning one's mind and one's being to be transformed by the renewing of our plural minds, hearts, bodies, lives, to be ordered toward love. It's telling the truth about ourselves and reorienting our hearts. 
That's what happens by belonging to Jesus, by being incorporated into a new humanity through Christ. We have all inherited our broken, sinful, malformed hearts from Adam, but through Christ, we can become fully human again through unmerited grace. What does this Christian perspective on sin, though, mean for us? That's number two. What does it mean? Well, this theology of sin offers us a nuanced way to approach and understand the world. We are not looking out into the world expecting to find anything that is either essentially evil or fully innocent. In fact, there's an old heresy called Manichaeanism, which divides the world into a spiritual battle between two forces, spiritual goodness and evil materialism. Manichaeans reject the goodness of creation. And that is not a Christian vision of the world. Even demons were created good as angelic beings who have themselves fallen. The wicked we hear so often about in Psalms are persons who are now defined by their wicked actions, but still bear the image of God. Sin is an internal rebellion of good creation versus our creator, not a yin and yang of equal and opposite forces of good and evil. That is not the way we believe as Christians. I very often have people ask me, do you think people are essentially good or essentially evil? My response is yes. We are fundamentally enslaved to sin. We are fundamentally people who bear the goodness and dignity of God's image. We are essentially broken. We very often don't like nuance, though. It makes us uncomfortable. It's hard for us to deal with. We like things in simple heuristics. But maturity in Christ invites us into humility and love in the midst of difficult and complex situations. And with all of this in mind, the Solzhenitsyn quote takes on new significance. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere out there insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Friends, when we see real pain, suffering, and evil in our world, like the heinous acts committed against George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, we must experience righteous indignation. It should make us angry. It should make us act. The problem is both out there in the world, but also in here, in us. All of us, without exception, I would encourage us all to take an implicit bias test. And if you don't know what that is, just Google it. It's hard, it's uncomfortable, but you can't manage what you don't measure. We can't repent of things that we are unwilling to see in ourselves. And we should be specific. It should not surprise us to find that we have implicit biases, unreflective fears and impulses. And admitting that, we don't immediately become purely evil people. We are sinners in need of repentance and grace, and God can offer us that. The hope that we have comes from the one person who is perfectly good, Jesus, our Lord. You know, when you tune a guitar, especially when you are a beginner, you need a pitch pipe, or now, of course, it's an app on your phone which tells you when a string is calibrated correctly, is in tune. 
That tool helps you hear clearly what was unclear before. And after a period of time, an able guitarist can tune a guitar by ear. They have become attuned to the way the guitar should sound. This story of sin, of universal brokenness, would be a very sorry one indeed if, it were not, if we did not have Jesus Christ. If we were not adopted by God as members of the body of Christ and thus can turn away from our bitter heritage in Adam that brought death and sorrow, that happens by looking to, abiding in, and depending on Jesus, leaning into Jesus, belonging to Jesus, belonging to one another in Jesus. But it also means dying to sin. It means forsaking the heritage of Adam. Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We should be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. We have to die to our own pride of being good people. But when we submit our sin in the flesh to share in the crucifixion of Jesus, we also are raised with him to new life. That universal understanding of sin was the foundation for the gospel in Rome. Paul saw honest reckoning with our own heritage in Adam and adoption into a new humanity in Jesus as the way to break down walls of hostility between ethnic groups and classes. And that is still true today. Amongst a cacophony of voices all around us, Christ is our guide. Abiding in Christ is what attunes our heart toward real, just harmony with one another. In a few hours, many of us will be joining a march to Boston Commons to declare the dignity of persons of color and worship with one another in this shared hope. In Rwanda, they have a saying, if you want to walk quickly, go alone. But if you want to walk far, go with others. Come literally walk with us today. Pray with others today. Tell the truth about our sin in the world and in ourselves, but also know that in Jesus, God is making all things new. And that's not just a personal exercise. It's an exercise that we bring out into the public. It's an exercise that we go and pray for the peace of our city with. It's an exercise that we look to create a more just society but it all starts with being honest about who we are and what we need, which is Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we are grateful. Lord, we're grateful that we don't have to be afraid of telling the truth about ourselves. That Lord, when we find things that are ugly and painful that are true in our own hearts, that Lord, we can give them to you. That Lord, we can be truthful about the despair that we might have without the hope that you give us. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us can examine our own hearts and be willing to listen and see the ways in which sin infects your good world all around us. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.